Hello and welcome to Giants of Gene Therapy. I'm Hans-Peter Kiem, President of the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy. My guest today is another true giant in our field and pioneer in the fight against cancer, Dr. Carl June. Carl is the Richard Vake Professor in Immunotherapy in the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the Director of the Center for Cellular Immunotherapy and the Director of the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy at UPenn. Carl has pioneered the development of CAR T-cells and the use of genetically modified T-cells. He was truly instrumental in bringing CAR T-cells to the clinic and also uh, received the first FDA approval for CAR T-cell therapy in 2017. In 2018, Carl was featured in Time 100 as one of the most influential people in the world for the invention of CAR T-cell therapy for cancer. Dr. June is a prolific researcher who has published more than 500 manuscripts. He received numerous awards and honors, including his election into the National Academies of Medicine and Science and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's been the founder or co-founder of quite a number of companies involved in T-cell therapies. And Dr. June has been an ASGCT member and annual meeting keynote speaker. Thank you so much for making time today, Carl. My first question will be, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what got you into science very early on. Uh, thanks, and also thanks, Hans Peter, for the uh, introduction. And um, you know, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, my dad was a chemical engineer. I was admitted to Stanford, you know, in 1971 at completion of uh, high school, and but then that was right in the midst of the Vietnam War. And I ended up uh, getting a low draft number. And so I went, then went into the Navy and never uh, actually went to Stanford. So I moved from the West Coast to the East Coast then. So in your family, was there science sort of, did you really grow up, you know, talking about science? No, well, my dad is an, was an engineer and mathematician. So yeah. but there was no science and there had never been a physician in my family. Okay. Um, but, you know, uh, and I started off thinking I would be a chemist like my father, but then we got really interested in, you know, biology and uh, that led to medical school. Obviously, no, you were accepted to Stanford, but then uh, you went to the Naval Academy, correct? Yes, Maybe, yeah. Uh, spent... What about that transition, though, how that all came about? <laughs> yeah, you know, it was one, you know, I have to say it was completely unexpected. No one in my family had ever gone to in, into the military like that. And and so it was, you know, four years of undergraduate where I did, uh, you know, chemistry and biology. And then the war got over, the Vietnam War, um, and I had a seven-year obligation, and they opened up uh, opportunities to go to medical school. And so, you know, I was given a scholarship and went to medical school in, in Houston at Baylor College of Medicine, you know, all funded by the Navy. And then after medical school? Yeah, well, you know, I had then at that point, they had put me through four years of undergraduate on scholarship and then medical school. I owed 12 years back to the Navy. And, you know, through medical school, I had gotten interested in immunology. My mother had had lupus when I was growing up and, um, and autoimmune disease runs a lot in my family. So I, I began working in a well in medical school in an immunology lab studying immune complexes. And then I was able to go to Switzerland for a year and, and work in the World Health Organization. And I worked there on uh, the immunology of malaria. 
um, and that's my first publications. Um, mm-hmm. So I got very interested in immunology, you know, in medical school, but, but the Navy wouldn't let me go and get a PhD. So I was not allowed. I, I tried and they didn't, all they wanted was, you know, the medical training. And, and so I was able to get a whole year of work as a graduate student in, in Geneva, Switzerland at the World Health Organization. And then, you know, and then I was very fortunate to go to the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center for bone marrow transplantation therapy, your institution, where right. I then, you know, continued in immunology. Tell us a little bit about that time you know, at the Fred Hutch, of course, when it started out and you know, yeah, I mean, before my time. <laughs> I was very interested in immunology and, you know, in infections. I had been, you know, working on malaria and then HIV, you know, came out right then as I got done yeah. with my internal medicine training. And so the Fred Hutch was really the birthplace of allogeneic bone marrow transplantation, as you know. It's really the first cell therapy. And, and that's really what, you know, and there I studied um, T-cell activation. I was in uh, with Paul Martin and John Hansen and uh, got very interested in the activation of T-cells because I saw these horrible cases of graft-versus-host disease. And we knew from the mouse studies that, you know, many people had done that T-cells are what are doing this, you know, orchestrating immune destruction. And and so I became interested in how we could activate and control T cells. Um, and so that led to studies on the biochemical signal transduction of the T cell receptor and co-stimulatory molecules like CD28. This was done right during the kind of mid 80s, uh, if I remember correctly, you know, at that time. You, know, you also worked with Craig Thompson at that time, right? Yeah, and that's an interesting story. You know, Craig <laughs> was also in the Navy. And... So he had gone to Dartmouth Medical School on a Navy scholarship while I had gone to Baylor. Then we, so we then, you know, the Navy decided, and this is another interesting story, the, <laughs> the reason the Navy decided to train us for bone marrow transplant, they, treat, they trained four physicians to do allo bone marrow transplants in 1983, way before it became, you know, generally into medicine as it is now. And the reason they did that was the Navy had nuclear submarines which could lead to limited nuclear casualties, as you know, from radiation issues. And, and actually the Navy in the midst of this time was in the, it was a cold war. And with Russia, yeah. the Navy needed ships that could go up in um, through Japan. And Japan actually required that we have a program to treat nuclear casualties. And so that's why Craig and I ended up at the Fred Hutch. And that's where I met him. We worked very closely for 20 years together. And it was all because of the Cold War. And, and so, but then the Navy, right, you've mentioned before, and, and you had to focus on infectious diseases. And yeah. then, of course, you know, there was HIV. And I, of course, that's also how I got to know about your work with HIV. Maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, your thoughts at that time, you know, in terms of, you know, how to harness the immune system to fight HIV. Yeah, and that's another interesting story and another unplanned fork in my career. Um, you know, so the Navy, there's, you know, the, the U.S. government, as you know, funds cancer research through a congressionally appropriated funds directly to the National Cancer Institute. And the Navy, in fact, all the armed services, Army and Navy and Air Force, are only allowed to do research in infectious disease and in um, combat casualty care or, you know, like trauma. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
I was trained, as you know, as a, like you, as an oncologist at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center. I was board certified. I was a Bormar transplanter, and I couldn't do research in that field we, as long as I was in the Navy. So uh, I worked, you know, and began uh, working on HIV. Um, and my first paper ever published in science was on HIV and uh, what it did in integration, uh, latent HIV, and so on. So. And that turned out to be really useful later with CAR T cells because I learned a lot about the virology of HIV and how to use it then, as you know, as a lentiviral yep. vector. So it was all all due to that, that um, I was not starting out my research in cancer therapy, which is where I had been initially interested. But you started also working on CAR T cells in HIV. No, that was, yeah. one of, I think, one of your first studies, right? Yeah, and that's that became, that happened because one of my, you know, I had Bruce Levine came as a postdoc in my lab, and we we were studying HIV immunopathogenesis. Had a paper about this latent effects of what HIV does to T cells that survive and and end up having latently integrated HIV. And in doing that, we were studying um, and trying to grow T cells from patients with AIDS. This is before potent antiretrovirals were around. So the patients all had high viral loads and very low T cell counts, and no one had ever really gotten T cells to grow well from those patients. Um, and you know they had a real, as you know, they died from mm -hmm. immunodeficiency of, you know, T cell lymphopenia. And so we wanted to quantitatively improve and qualitatively improve their T cells. And Bruce Levine did an experiment where, I mean, we we had worked on CD twenty eight as activating T cells, put them on beads. And it works very well to grow cells. Um, and so we started using that on HIV and, you know, to grow CD4 cells from these AIDS patients. And, and we had this interesting thing where he, we had to make viral stocks of HIV, you know, and we wanted to get natural, you know, HIV from uh, directly from patients rather than having lab adapted strains. So I told Bruce, go take, you know, we had HIV blood donors, just take one of those patients and then grow up the T cells and then the virus will come out and then we can use that as a stock. Well, he did that. And, you know, the CD28 coated beads, the cells grew great and there was no virus came out mm -hmm. in spite of a lot of replicating, C, you know, uh, CD4 cells where, and we had control experiments where if we activated with lectins like PHA, plenty of virus came out, lots of cytopathic effects and that ended up being a paper in Nature because we found out that CD28 downregulated CCR5, co-stimulatory receptor, a co-receptor for HIV. And yet, and CTLA4 has opposite effect. It turns up this, the receptor and you can really make HIV much more pathogenic that way. So mm -hmm. that's how we found that out. And when we had that paper published, Cell Genesis, which was uh, a company in South Biotech and South San Francisco then, saw that we could grow T cells efficiently. And they made a car called CD4 Zeta for HIV. And so we partnered with them to do the first trial in patients started in the late 1990s with CAR T cells in, in HIV infected patients. Yeah, you know, I, I do remember that very well, actually. Yeah. So this was also around the time when other people were working on or sort of started, I think, thinking about CAR T cells. Now, I think one of the other early people uh, was Zeli Gashar, right, who was really, you know, working on that concept, even though um, not necessarily for cancer at that time. Yeah, Zelig, you know, so the, that it's a very interesting story, really, because it shows how basic science 
you know, can lead to unanticipated clinical benefits in medicine. And so Zelig was testing haptins and um, wanted to see if he could get MHC independent activation of T cells in, um, in mouse T cells. And so he made, you know, grafted onto the T cell receptor. So not exactly the same design as we use it on car molecule now, but he could then show MHC independent uh, activation of T cells. That was in 1989. And, and actually what people was missed was that a, a lab in Japan had done that in 1987, uh, a guy, a professor Kuwana mm-hmm. and uh, published. And there they showed in a little cited paper in BBRC that you could also get MHC independent signal transduction through the T cell receptor. Uh, by grafting on antibody fragments uh, to the uh, TCR. So then Zelig in 1993 published the paper in PNAS where he then um, you made an independent molecule. Instead of grafting onto the TCR, he put antibody binding domains onto the zeta chain of the T-cell receptor, and he called those T-bodies. And uh, that led then, you know, to many people working on these as an MHC independent way to redirect T cell specificity. So who else was working on, on that concept at that time? Uh, this was like then around the nineties, early nineties, I think, right. It was about a handful. Well, you know, a couple of things constrained it. Um, I mean, there were about five labs working on that. I mean, where I started at the Fred Hutch, uh, you know, Phil Greenberg laid many of the principles for, uh, you know, adoptive cell therapy in studies in mice, but, and he mostly was interested in T-cell receptor redirected cells. Uh, but Ollie Press, who was a fellow with me while I was there mm-hmm. with Craig Thompson, became very interested in retargeting T-cells with rituximab. And so he made CD20 cards. And uh, then he worked with Mike Jensen and... Uh, uh, Lawrence Cooper, who was in Phil Greenberg's lab. And so they had a nucleus starting there at the Fred Hutch there. And then uh, Michelle Satellane oh, had right. a very yep. active and long-term interest in that at the Memorial Sloan Cancer Center. And then Zelegeshar went and did a, um, a sabbatical at the National Cancer Institute, uh, where he worked uh, with uh, Patrick Hugh and Steve Rosenberg to uh, make CAR T cells targeting folate receptor alpha in ovarian yeah. cancer. So this was then around the time when I think people realized, right, to use gene therapy to really retarget the immune system. Because yeah. 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 You know, Rosenberg had, had done, you know, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in many studies, right? I, mean, I know we've done here many studies initially with, with unmodified T cells. So that's exactly right, Hans Peter. Um, you know, what happened was uh, the con- confluence of, you know, genetic engineering tech, you know, gamma retroviruses and lentiviruses to allow gene insertion efficiently into T cells. The way to grow T cells efficiently, which, you know, we found from my lab, the, the beads activating through CD28. And then, um, you know, the use of co-stimulatory domains, because Zelegeshar had only used the zeta chain of the T cell receptor and there was no co-stimulation that so to get long-term persistence of cells, it was necessary to use and add in molecules like CD28 or 4MBB in you know, so-called second-generation CAR T-cell designs. But what a lot of people also don't realize was that, and, but you certainly well know, is you know the accidents in gene therapy, the well-publicized 
uh, death of Jesse Gelsinger in, in 1999, that made all the biotech stop, you know, not believe that it was possible to do gene therapy. Mm-hmm. So just the labs kind of that we've been discussing continued academically, but biotech, we, you know, basically at that point, you know, gave up on that approach. So it was carried on in an academic environment by, by the people we're talking about. And that's the only way it survived. That's right. I remember that. Now, it was very hard to actually get money, right, for these studies and to fund, you know, the, it looked very promising, but there was really no funding yeah. there. So yeah, how did you survive those times? <laughs> I mean, it was it was really, you know, I, I think this is, you know, the story is Michelle Satellane and I really were the first to do co-stimulatory, you know, second generation CAR yeah. T-cells. We did it at Memorial with a C-19 CAR and CD-28, and that became basically what, yes, CARTA is today from Kite Gilead, and I did our studies with, you know, Form BB, CD-19 CARs, and... um but that all happened because of um, uh, unappreciated thing from Barbara and Edward Netter. So they had their daughter-in-law get breast cancer, and they saw the awful effects of chemotherapy. So they went and said, there must be a better way. And they went to Savio Wu, uh, who said, you know, this is really, cell and gene therapy might be much better, you know, and has promise. And they were wealthy. And um, they and Savio put together similar to ASGCT. He made a CGT, the base pairs and DNA, and it was the Alliance for Cancer Gene Therapy. And that association gave two million dollar grants, two grants of one million each in 2004 to my lab and to Michelle Satellite. And that's what funded the initial trials that I just mentioned, you know, that. Uh, it was because neither Michelle Satellin nor I could get National Cancer Institute to fund those trials because there have been disappointing results for so many years with, you know, cell and gene therapy. But not not really, though, right, in the immunotherapy space. I mean, that was, yeah, that's um, was at that time not quite, I think, recognized, no, the potential at least, no, no. for that. So yeah. obviously, you know, you picked HIV as your Trojan horse to, to get the car in. Uh, others picked just the gamma retroviral vectors. Was that because of your HIV background or knowledge or at that time? It's exactly right. So I'd worked a lot with HIV and then we found that it caused less silencing. I mean, it evolved, you know, to be yeah. expressed in human T cells. And we saw in some experiments we did, you know, silencing with gamma retroviruses. And uh, so that's, well, you know, why we went with HIV. And we also spent, Mike Malone, who was a postdoc in my lab, spent two years just studying different promoters in T-cells to, to maintain, you know, expression of the transgene. And that was a really important issue, too, to not have, um, you know, to have stable expression of the CAR molecule. Yeah. So maybe I fast forward a little bit now to your first patients uh, in, you know, patients uh, that had uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Maybe you can tell us a little bit how, how that came about, that study, and, and of course, that uh, enormous success then. Yeah, that was, um, you know, it came about because of that philanthropic grant from ACGT. Yeah. And, uh, and we, we used, uh, you know, the, the protocol was written for C19 cars for patients with untreatable C19 positive tumors. And just by happenstance, our first three patients had CLL. 
partly is that they could live long enough um, and have, because the manufacturing took us a long time to get things approved, you know, and so acute leukemia was much, much harder with a patient and timing, as you know. Uh, and so we didn't initially treat ALL. We tried, treated, you know, chemo refractory CLL. And, you know, um, so, and the first two patients treated in uh, uh, 2010, you know, uh, have, you know, survived for more than a decade now with no recurrent leukemia. And so just last year, you know, we, we published a paper mm-hmm. showing the 10 year survival of those patients that's leukemia free and um uh you know that the car t cells uh persisted for a decade which is something we never anticipated because that car molecule has a mouse antibody right you no know, it's the hybridoma called fmc 63 and we thought it would be rejected in fact in our consent form we said we thought that the car t cells would last about a month based on some results that stan riddell had done you know, and as you know, well know about the immunogenicity of cells yeah. and patients. So you spent a lot of time studying that. And we thought they'd be gone. And it turns out by targeting B cells, you could induce tolerance to a mouse protein. It was a really unexpected result. That was really amazing, those results. Yeah. But but also, I mean, that these CAR T cells persisted for so long, right? I mean, yeah. that was, I mean, in, in this particular patient population, because that's not the case for all other diseases necessarily. No, in fact, in so we had in, in those CLL patients and in ALL, we see the same thing uh, with C19 targeted CAR cells. They persist a very long time and in lymphoma, although um, part of the reason may be that, you know, they're um, immunosuppressed to start with and there's mm-hmm. more niches available for lymphocytes in the patients because they've had extensive pretreatment with, you know, B cell and T cell depleting chemotherapy. And and we haven't had long-term survival of CAR T cells in solid cancer patients. Right. Now, right. So it's possible that when you target CD19, basically the, the new B cells that emerge from stem cells are basically acting as a vaccine to boost the CD19 mm-hmm. CAR cells. That may be and so it may be a very special case with CD19 that, that you have very long-term persistence of the CAR cells. Right. I think where if you actually got sterile elimination of all the CAR targets, you know, with other kinds of, um, you know, in other tumor settings, then maybe the CAR T cells, unless they're engineered in other ways, may not persist long-term. Right. So then I think you've treated three patients, right? And then Emily came, right? Yeah. She was very <laughs> sick, obviously. Now, you've heard about this story and 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 that must have been a very difficult decision though at that time <laughs> yeah we you know, so we had as you said the CLL patients treated and then were able to get uh with Stephen Grupp at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia um approval to treat refractory pre-B cell ALL um in both adults and children and so the pediatric protocol was led by um uh, uh, Stephen Grupp at Children's Hospital, and the adult protocol was, you know, led by uh, David Porter and Noel Fry at, at, you know, at the University of Pennsylvania. And so, and, and but the first patient, you know, pediatric patient treated was Emily Whitehead in April 2012, and you know she had a much more vigorous response than our CLL patients had, um, probably because you know younger age, youthful T cells. And um, less immunosuppression in in ALL than there is in CLL, I think. And so she had very severe cytokine 
release syndrome. She had 106 degree fever for three days and multi-organ failure on uh, ventilatory support and comatose. And um, Michael Kalos, who was in the lab and initially had trained with Phil Greenberg, by the way, yeah, he yeah. Was, <laughs> who did our uh, correlative analysis. And um, Michael did research labs and found actually that there was extraordinarily high levels of IL-6 in MLA. I mean, basically a thousand times above baseline. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, when we couldn't find any evidence of infection. And so my daughter who has had, uh, you know, um, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, I knew about uh, tocilizumab, which had just been approved for pediatric arthritis. And so I suggested to Steve Grupp, one should try treating Emily with that because she had been treated with very high dose steroids and TNF blockade and none of that uh, ablated the cytokine storm. But almost immediately after getting IL-6 antagonistic therapy with tocilizumab, you know, she basically deaf her best and woke up. It was really astonishing. Yeah, that was that was amazing. And that, you know, also very lucky that you had that sort of experience with tocilizumab. Yeah, it was just, you know, because of my daughter, you know, I was president of the Clinical Immunology Society in 2009. And and as you will do for ASGCT, you know, you have presidential awards. <laughs> my presidential award at the Clinical Immunology Society in 2009 to 10, which when I was president, was given to a um, professor uh, in Japan uh, who had, you know, invented the drug. And, and so, uh, you know, and so he came to the United States for the award ceremony and it was really a, a really, a, a very interesting, uh, um, that's the only way and the reason I knew about it. It's wonderful. And also to see Emily now while she's done. So this was obviously amazing. You've treated quite a number more patients, uh, on, on this protocol. And then, then there was the FDA approval. Do you remember where you were and how, what happened around that time and must must have been really exciting. <laughs> it was, I mean, no one, I, I don't think any of us, I mean, you could talk to me or Phil Greenberg or Michelle Satterlein or Malcolm Brenner, who was all, you know, people, that's where they were really working on engineered stuff. Yeah. None of us thought it would ever be commercially approved. We all thought it was basically a proof of concept, you know, redirected immune cells and maybe, you know, but you know, but after we had those really striking results, you know, Novartis licensed, you know, the CAR T cell we had and um, and began, you know, an international registration trial. And, you know, the results of that confirmed what we had had at, at our single center study. They had a, in that registration trial, uh, an 82% complete response rate yeah. in refractory leukemia. It was really astonishing. And so it was in August of 2017 that the FDA approved it. And I was at the, the ODAC meeting when the, you know, I was watching from the audience and it was, they had, you know, patients who were testifying. I mean, Emily Whitehead's father was there yeah. and uh, all saying how it was much preferable to have CAR T cells than chemotherapy and, and bone marrow transplants. So it was really a, a courageous thing by the FDA to have approved that because many unknowns. Uh, it was based on treatment of about a hundred patients at that time. And, uh, uh, and, and it's probably one of the first therapies to be approved first in pediatrics and then later in adults. Right. So that was normally, surprising to me too. You first treated yeah. adult patients. Yeah, we first treated, but then the, you know, Novartis, uh, this is another part that's not well, you know, well known or appreciated is 
you know, they have when you get something approved commercially, you have to be able to show that you can treat the affected population ethically so that mm-hmm. uh, there's not um, uh, auctions and stuff on who gets treated. So they had to be able to treat uh, when they opened up Novartis for a commercial sale, the, the people. And so if it had been a solid tumor, there's no way they could manufacture. I mean, the rate limiting step now with autologous T cells is, you know, very difficult and manufacturing. And so with pediatric ALL, there's only several thousand cases a year mm-hmm. in the U.S. that Novartis was confident they could do that manufacturing from a single manufacturing center. And and then all, all patients uh, would who in the U.S. who had refractory ALL would then be able to get the therapy. So yeah. then later, that's why later as they scaled up manufacturing, they went to adults. Right. So you say it was surprising. Well, why did you say it was surprising? I mean, we knew the immune system can can get rid of cancer you now from the allergenic transplantation. Mm-hmm. We just had to kind of rein in the toxicities and, and make it more targeted, right? I mean, there's been a lot of surprises. I mean, ALL is not you know, doesn't respond well, as you know, to allogeneic therapy. Yeah. I mean, it's much better with AML, you know, when you use allogeneic non-gene modified, you know, DLI and T-cell infusions and transplants. So it was a surprise that it worked as well as it did. And it actually worked better in humans than it did in mice. Yeah, I mean, we think the fields kind of concluded that human T-cells are more robust than mouse T-cells. So I, I was, I mean, and we never once saw cytokine release syndrome in mice like we did in the humans. Um, there are a lot of surprises, you know, and that's why we need to do phase one trials. Um, but the proliferation of the right. cells in humans, were, you know, and uh, the other reason I was surprised is, I mean, the previous trials had failed. I mean, the trials with the, of CAR T cells that were not second generation. So there was right. one by, by core lammers targeting uh, carboxyan hydrase nine in, in the Netherlands, and then the one that uh, Steve Rosenberg's group did in uh, with um, uh, folate receptor alpha retarget cells. Those CAR T cells barely engrafted and did not proliferate after transfer. Mm-hmm. And that when we use the second generation CARs with embedded co-stimulation and then um, improved manufacturing using C28 co-stimulation, I mean, the cells proliferated more than a thousand fold in all the patients. I mean, it was really astonishing compared to basically the lack of proliferation in the previous trials. So now obviously we've got several approved uh, CAR T-cell therapies also for multiple myeloma. And I'd like to just now get a little bit of your thoughts, now where you think the field is going, of course. Now we've got CAR and K-cells. We've got, of course, CAR macrophages. Where do you think, and you were still trying to figure out things for solid tumors, obviously. Where, where do you think uh, the field is going with all this, these different technologies right now that we have available? It's, I mean, I think, um, well, and I think you do too, that, I mean, cell and gene therapy is, is a precision therapy that can be ultra personalized. Um, but it, it, it's very, we have the tool set that no, none of us ever thought, I think. So one major thing, you know, we had the ability to do gene knock-ins basically with lentiviral vectors or gamma retroviruses. But then in 2012 is when CRISPR was first published and the ability to do multiplex gene knockouts. So that that came, you know, we we began and did a first trial using CRISPR in patients with three mm-hmm. different RNAs and, and published that in 2020. And now with base editing, 
So the sky is kind of the limit now in both knocking in genes and knocking them out. So I think there's this confluence of synthetic biology with immunology and better understanding of the mechanisms of resistance to therapies. Um, so I'm very optimistic that, you know, basically all tumors will be treated with some form of cell and gene therapy as, as we work out the problems. Now, it's, they're not simple. And, but I do think we're going to see, you know, for instance, also combinations, for instance, various oncolytic viruses used with cell therapies, you know, look, mm -hmm. clinical studies are very synergistic. So, um, you know, we now have tool set. I mean, those, the ideas are not news, you know, I mean, right, people right. were in 1950 um, in, in, in England, um, th there were studies, you know, that, um, uh, by Billingham and Brent and Metawar showing T cells could cause, um, you know, graft versus host disease. They, mm -hmm. they didn't know how to really grow them, but they could transfer from one mouse to another and they knew T cells could kill two tissues. So the ideas are, were there at that point then of using T cells to kill cancer cells. Yeah. But they didn't yeah. have the tool set. They just didn't have right. the tools. No, it's very exciting. Now we've got the tools and I agree, you know. And so, where, where do you think again? I mean, this is, of course, uh, right now, it's still a fairly complicated process. You know, I see these patients myself. I mean, sometimes, of course, we have to collect the cells. We sometimes they don't grow. We can't, the manufacturing doesn't work, you know, of course. So, where do you, if there's allogeneic that people want off the shelf? You've actually done also a beautiful study, you know, with Drew and, and Jonathan Epstein, Drew Weissman and Jonathan Epstein in vivo, right? Yeah. Where do you think this is going in terms of delivery? It's, I mean, I think we're going to see, so as you just said, there's going to be off the shelf cells that are various, you know, allogeneic sources. I, induced pluripotent stem cells, um, stem cells engineered as you've been doing and pioneering. And I think, I think that's, we'll see all of those happen. I mean, car and K cells, there's about 50 trials now with mm -hmm. different kinds of car and K cells. And so different cell types, different autologous and allogeneic. Now they each, the autologous, the logistics are more difficult, but we just reported, you know, with that ash, you know, using three-day manufacturing, really good mm -hmm. results now with an armored car that expresses IL-18 and target C-19. And so we, when you get down to very short manufacturing, that it, it doesn't really matter anymore on uh, compared to off the shelf. But what is, is, is true is they're much cheaper, you know, to have an off the shelf allogeneic cell line that's used. And, but the safety is going to be different. I mean, autologous T cells now, um, Bruce Levine's added up, you know, if you look, um, about 20,000 patients have been treated worldwide now with CAR T cells, you know, some on, you know, uh, um, academic trials and others with commercial products. And at least as of last year, when I look closely, no, no cases of transformation were reported with a CAR cell. So right. there's remarkable resistance of autologous T cells to insertional oncogenesis mm -hmm. by gamma retroviruses and, and uh, lantiviruses, but you know, in, in Australia, they reported two cases of CAR T cell lymphomas about a year ago in blood. So they had nine patients treated with allogeneic CAR T cells, mm -hmm. and you know, and uh, um, where they had been gene edited, and they they used piggyback in that case, a transposase based system to uh, introduce the CAR, and 
in, in two of those patients within several months, they had a lymphoma that had integrated car molecules. So they were donor derived. So that's a very uh, uh, severe, you know, toxicity uh, if you have transformation. So, you know, I think one thing for sure is that, that the allogeneic cells are going to need different safety mechanisms and, and so on than autologous cells. What do you think about this study you've done with Jonathan Epstein and and Drew Weissman? Could could this ever be done? As you know, there's other people interested in that. Yeah. Well, I think that's you know the in vivo. There's several approaches, including some you know, investigators at the Fred Hutch on either using in vivo viral directed, you know, where the cars of cells and are engineered in the patient and skipping the ex vivo approach. I mean, this in last year, you know, there was. Um, a really important seminal paper, I think, where the CAR T cell, virtually identical to the one developed in my lab, was used for five patients with refractory uh, lupus in Erlangen uh, in a study uh, there um, led by uh, uh, Mackinson, so a, friend, mm-hmm. a long-term friend of mine in Erlangen. And all five patients have drug-free remissions. These yeah. were refractory lupus patients. And so it worked much better than any anyone would have predicted, I think, you know, to, um, and what that mechanism is of how restoring self-tolerance by B-cell depletion. But so I think this approach of in vivo, you know, we what I did with Drew Weissman and John Epstein really is that was targeted lipid nanoparticles to manufacture CAR T-cells in mice. And it's quite efficient. I mean, it, which is really... A, a big issue. Now, the question is, would it be efficient in monkeys or humans when you scale that? And that's, as you know, that's a whole other issue that we don't know yet. But I think there's going to be in vivo manufacturing of engineered cell therapies. And then long term, there'll also be this ex vivo use like we're doing now for right. more sophisticated approaches involving multiple gene multiplexing. So if, if I could push you now in 10 years, where do you think we are in 10 years? Now, let's yeah. say for solid, especially for solid tumors, of course, yeah. what, what do you think immunotherapy will look like in 10 years? So, you know, right now, basically there's approaches targeting with antibody-based approaches, you know, carb molecules and, and then T-cell receptors. A huge new part of that is neoantigens, you know, targeting the mutated antigens in, in, in cancers that have high mutational load. So I think we're going to have both kinds of therapy after approved CARs and TCR T cells. Um, I think that there's going to, there's a lot of work ongoing by many labs now looking at how to get around the problem. There's because the two problems in solid tumors really are lack of good targets like C19 and BCMA. So that's going to be solved either by combinatorial targeting or, or switching molecules on and off like um colloidals down on others i think but the other issue you know is t-cell exhaustion that that occurs rapidly in solid tumors i mean phil greenberg studied that for in a at, at your institute in a lot a lot of detail in mouse pancreatic cancer and we've studied it in humans and find very similar results that he sees in the mouse and so if the, so the t-cell dysfunction and exhaustion has to be overcome too and I think that that's going to be solved by the field. So I think that may take 10 years. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, it's not, it, it's a very complex problem of, you know, targeting solid tumors, getting trafficking into the two tumors and maintaining 
the function. And it, and it may and may require, you know, combinations with cell therapies and, and viral therapies. Um, but I, I think I think the field will solve that. And yeah. now there's so much research, so many labs. Do you think, I mean, it will we'll need new targets? You know, I, I think we're both yeah. interested in glioblastoma, where obviously that yeah. we've you know, thought about CAR T cells, and but not, do we have the right targets? Yeah, no, and I think, um, you know, there, I think what we'll have is, you know, there'll be T cell receptor targets, you know, targeting the mutated antigens. There's hotspots. I mean, very exciting data this last year with KRAS. Yeah, so yeah. Two patients now have had T cell receptors targeting you know the mutant kras rather than wild type kras and really exciting results so i think um you know we're going to see both the tcr t cells and the car t cells but there'll be um to get you know to solve the toxicity you know on target but off tumor toxicity issues we'll need to either have switchable car cells um or you know multi-targeting can you know that are uh, smarts you know cells right. that make decisions on whether to kill or not Okay, thanks so much, Carl. So you've just trained so many physicians, physician scientists, scientists, uh, faculty, investigators. What advice do you give to you know trainees, the people you um, you know mentor? Uh, what advice do you give them? Yeah, well, now I think I mean basically f- do what you have passion for. You know, I mean, it, and then you just have to follow your nose. I mean, I mean, there's so many completely unexpected things that have happened in my career, you know, where um, and led to other things that were unexpected. And you, if you follow those opportunities, I think you'll enjoy it. You won't be bored. And the field now has it's it, we're right at the beginning. I mean, of I, I think like in the 1980s, that was just when Microsoft was starting when I was yeah, at Seattle. Yeah. And then you look at what the computer industry is now. We're like in the 1980s of the um, when in Seattle when you know and and when Steve Jobs was starting um, Apple and uh, Microsoft. We have right now this same situation in cell and gene therapy. And over the next several decades, it's I think going to be an amazing explosion of progress. Um, and so I, I think it's the most exciting time for young people to go in this kind of science. That's a great analogy with the computer world. You've also raised five children, correct? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. And, and how, how do you balance that family and, I mean, you, your work? That's impossible. I mean, that comes down to each person and their partner coming to an agreement. And, you know, um, my first wife was a teacher. Uh, and, you know, and I had the same kind of things you did as a postdoc. And I had my first child when I was, you know, just getting out of medical school. And, and she took care, I mean, cause I was working a hundred hours a week. And, and so that allowed that. And then my first wife passed away from ovarian cancer. I got remarried, two more children. And she has, uh, she's a scientist. So we have a much more balanced uh, as far as home. Uh, yeah. You know, so we've, we've worked that out, you know, with two people having jobs and, you know, it's t- so that's the hardest thing I think is work-life balance, and yeah. it's, it's hard uh, in many ways. So, and this career is demanding. Yeah, do you think it's gotten harder to do that? I do. Well, you know, there's been some changes in the, like the medical training yeah. that's right. made that a little bit, you know, more friendly. But there's still a large fallout of women in science because of. Uh, 
it's very hard, uh, you know, with it in, at least in academia, I think biotechnology industry, it may actually be better for, you know, having family and so on. I think you mm -hmm. have better control over your schedule than in academics do. Yeah. Well, thank you, uh, Carl. So I got to ask you, though, as you know, I'm a biker as well. And I know you're an avid biker, you know, so yeah. <laughs> what, what do you like to where do you like to bike these days? Are you still uh, using a gravel bike? <laughs> I have both. Yeah. I mean, my whole uh, fascination during uh, uh, the COVID thing was because we all our races and stuff got stopped. So it began this fascination I got with this. Uh, uh, extreme uh, event called Everesting, where in one bike ride you climb 29,000 feet, the vertical climb of Mount Everest. Uh -huh. And so I did that last August, in August 21, with my wife and daughter out in Maui. We went up wow. Haleakala. I did 30,000 feet of climbing on Haleakala. And, uh, you know, on a bike. And I trained for a year and a half to do that. And I built a special you know, mountain bike with the right gears to go up a very steep 12% gradient on average. That so, is amazing. Yeah. I drove up to the top. <laughs> you know, three times, I did it three times in uh, 19 hours. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you do any other sports? Well, I'm running is, uh, running you know, still. wow. But, well, Carl, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much. I really want to also congratulate you on your achievements and really what you've done for patients uh, and, and really uh, many other scientists. Um, thank you so much. Really well, thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Hans Peter. And thanks for leading a, you know, ASGCT. It's really it's to see the growth of that organization. I mean, the early days when we were in. It was yeah. like every year, could we survive another year? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I, it's, it's been truly amazing. And of course, I'm very happy to see how G, the gene therapy, gene editing aspect has really facilitated all these immunotherapies. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Well, thanks again. See ya.